Chapter 23 of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter 23 Miss Longleat at the Bunyas. Upon her return to Leckart's town, Miss Longleat plunged into a world of gaiety and tried, as many others have done, to stifle melancholy by dissipation. There were races upon the flats near Leckart's town, impromptu dances, tableaux vivants, and all the mild entertainments which heralded the session. The great balls would take place later. Honoria had tact and powers of organization. Her beauty, her fascination, and social position combined to place her at the head of a little salon, and Miss Longleat's drawing-room became the centre of fashion and meeting-point for ministerialists, and anti-railwayists whom there was some hope of conciliating. She seldom saw Dyson, but there were interesting strangers at that time in Leckartstown. A shrimpish sprig of nobility, and a certain General Compton, who oscillated between New South Wales and Leckart's land, on pretense of inspecting the colonial defences. These were both worth the trouble of captivation. On the whole, she was tolerably well amused. And if, underlying her outward vivacity, there was fierce jealousy of Mrs. Valency, repulsion from her father, doubt of herself, and bitter regret, only defined to herself as dissatisfaction with life and with lovers in general, she was too proud to allow her sentiments to become public property. During the period which had elapsed since the sudden dissolution of Parliament, our little drama of love and politics had proceeded in the order of episodic development. The flirtation between the Premier and Mrs. Valency had now become a favorite subject of covert gossip, though the Leckhardstonians, who were in the main a simple and easy-going clique, and not addicted to backbiting their neighbors, had not absolutely declined to accept the filial attitude which Mrs. Valency had assumed towards Mr. Longleat. She made capital of her delicate health, which had prevented her from accompanying her husband to Gundaroo, of her lonely position, and of the fatherly kindness of Mr. Longleat, whom she represented as an unappreciated paladin, actuated by motives of the purest magnanimity. But even the most gullible and charitably disposed of communities has a little hesitation in regarding gifts of dresses and trinkets, perpetual attendance in public, and private visits late in the evening combined with politic removal of an obnoxious husband as nothing but the outcome of paternal affection, and Mrs. Ferris, who arrived in Leckhart's town shortly after Barrington's departure from Kurlbin, was not the first to stigmatize Mrs. Valency as a brazen hussy, and to recommend the infusion of a little starch and blue into morals and manners. Upon her return to town, painful rumors reached Miss Longleat's ear, which galled her pride and wounded her sense of mastery. She had acted with small discretion, had spoken openly to her father, and, unchallenged, had volunteered her refusal to recognize Mrs. Valency or receive her at the Bunyas. The Premier, indeed, had no wish that there should be any intimacy between the two women. Passion had conquered his purer instincts, but he still felt that his daughter was a creature sacred and apart, and must not be contaminated by any doubtful society. Nevertheless, her defiant attitude roused his worst anger, and there ensued a stormy scene which resulted in cold division and scornful indifference. Longleat was guilty and heart-sore, Honoria distant and uncomprehending. Their mutual relations were painfully discordant. 
Honoria had acted with the hot-headed indiscretion of youth when she had set herself in tactless opposition to her father. She had not calculated upon his bulldog obstinacy that could never in a personal matter brook defeat. Had she realized the strong determining influence that, in spite of imperfect assimilation of temperament, she had hitherto exercised over his actions, she might perhaps have masked her suspicions under a compliant demeanor, and might, by the employment of a little feminine strategy, have won him from his enslaver. But she had not learned sufficient worldly wisdom to guide her through the emergency, and it was under the circumstances hardly surprising that Longleat should turn in disgust from a cheerless home and a frigid self-absorbed companion to the flattering atmosphere of Mrs. Valancy's drawing-room. In the old days when Honoria's will had, upon some comparatively insignificant matter, run counter to his own, he had merely smiled at the display of her spirit, and had yielded under protest to that spice of the tartar which it pleased him to think she had inherited from himself. But now the case had reference to a direct conflict for supremacy, and day by day the icy barrier that had risen between them made concession on either side impossible. Upon one occasion, when he found her sitting alone in the drawing-room, looking softened and melancholy, he came up behind her, and with awkward demonstrativeness kissed her forehead, saying, in a voice choked by the struggle between pride and affection, "'My girl, what is the use of going agin me like this? You cannot help being my flesh and my blood, and you cannot tear yourself asunder from me without pain to us both. Let's make the best of each other. Let's open our hearts to one another and pull together as far as we are able. There is something troubling you, apart from the cloud between us.' That's neither here nor there. I had never set my heart upon your cottoning with Constance Valancy, though at one time I should have liked you to be friends. On the whole, I think I am best pleased that you should keep apart. I have taught you to set your head up high, and I am not blaming you for it. There's things in which a man cannot expect his womenkind to sympathize. It is human nature, and there should be allowances made." I'm not angry that you hold yourself above me and her. But I'll have no interference with my doings, mind that. I'll not have you and that D. blank, old Penelope Ferris sitting in judgment upon me and my friends. He took a rapid stride across the room, during which she mentally revolted against his language. Then he returned and renewed his rough attempt at a caress. Tell me what ails you, he said. I know that something has been troubling you. Speak out to your old father. Is it sweethearts, or what? Only let me know, and I'll smooth it if I can. But Honoria's sensibilities had been unpleasantly ruffled, and her cold reticence with her father would have allowed her to suffer any pain rather than betray her heart's perplexities. How could she entrust such delicate and complex machinery into the conduct of hands so elephantine? She withdrew herself from the contact of his touch, and replied in those well-bred, neutral tones which acted like a cold-water douche upon Longleat's effusiveness. "'There is nothing the matter with me, thank you.' "'Then we'll go apart,' said Longleat, turning abruptly away. "'That is what it comes to. I have never asked much of you, Honoria, except that after I had worked hard for you and made a lady of you, you'd not hold yourself aloof from me and despise me.' I have been that proud of you that I have feared to let you into the workings of my mind lest they should defile you. But there comes a day when a man's softer side gets the upper hand of him. 
he grows past the excitement of striving to distance his betters, and of making himself famous and respected, and then there falls upon him a longing for love and sympathy and confidence. And if they are not shown to him in his home, who is to blame him for seeking them elsewhere? Honoria's lip trembled, but she did not reply, and after casting upon her a long, troubled look, her father left the room. After this scene with his daughter, Longleat placed no further restraint upon his impulses. He was at this time living like a man in a dream. His passion for Mrs. Valency had completely taken possession of the coarse side of his nature, as the craving for intoxicants seizes upon an intermittent drunkard, till the future becomes bounded by the gratification of his dominant desires. On Sunday evening he went to church with Honoria, and found his wandering attention enchained by an exposition of the parable of Nathan, which, dealing in euphemistic language with the passionate proclivities of the psalmist, had the twofold effect of rousing Longleat's interest and contempt. Was there not, between David and himself, the common bond of craving humanity? When he reached home he went straight to his study, and took from its shelf the great family Bible, wherein was recorded his second marriage and the birth of Janie. He deliberately turned over the leaves till his eyes fell upon the passages for which he sought. The drops stood upon his red-veined forehead, and he clenched his hands as he read. After all, he murmured, I am no worse than David. A man must be a man. It is human nature, and what is the use of fighting against it? After that he had no hesitation in clearly shaping his vague longings into conscious resolves, and chafed more and more at the ingenious simplicity with which Constance Valency met his advances. Yet he felt certain that she understood him and waited, in a state of feverish excitement, till the general election should have decided his political fate, before he finally matured his designs. Mrs. Valency showed considerable skill in parrying his addresses. Once confident of his subjugation, she contrived to steer clear of dangerous admissions and compromising demonstrations, accepting his presence under filial protest and treating him with such an affection of childlike candor that he was by turns piqued and perplexed. Upon the whole, it seemed as though the premier star was approaching what he would regard as its zenith, and that in the coming crisis ambition and love were both to be gratified. Every day telegrams pouring in from different parts of the colony announced the success of the ministerial faction. Middleton had had a hard fight for his seat, and though the opposition was still paramount in the north, the eastern and western electorates had mostly returned advocates for the railway. His election for the constituency of Kuya was at this time assured to him. He was the hero of the hour, and notes of triumph trumpeted forth his every step. The only disagreeable sensation which he had suffered in the course of his much-applauded harangues was occasioned by the sight of Sammy Dean's malignant scowl, leveled at him from among the audience below the hustings. He shuddered, he knew not why, and his discomposure seemed to his excited fancy like a portent of evil. The free selector had quitted Coralbin the day after his nocturnal interview with Mr. Ferris, and was prowling about the suburbs of Leichardt's Town. After his lengthened visit to Kuralbin, Barrington remained a week at Daraaba, and then rode straight to the capital in pursuit of Miss Longleat. He put up at the Australasian, where Lord and Lady Dolph Bassett, who were down, as the latter expressed it, for a town lark, also occupied rooms. 
The day after his arrival he called at the Bunyas and was received by Mrs. Ferris, who had taken up her temporary abode there. The old lady regretted Miss Longleat's absence and upon her own responsibility invited him to dinner the next day. Early in the morning, however, he received a dainty note from Honoria, informing him that she was going to a concert and begging him to postpone the engagement till the following evening. A longing to see her possessed him. He went to the entertainment in attendance upon Lady Dolph and had the satisfaction of watching Miss Longleat enter in state to the tune of God Save the Queen in the wake of the Government House Party. But as he had not been presented to Lady Georgina Ogmering, etiquette forbade him to approach. Honoria looked very lovely and seemed encompassed by a certain pomp which was becoming to her style of beauty. Poor and petty as was the ceremonial, he could not but be struck by the grace with which she performed her part, and took pleasure in the somewhat premature reflection that there would be no need for him to shrink from introducing her as his wife to the noblest of his English acquaintances. Before long she described him, and bowed, whispering shortly afterwards to Lady Georgina Augmering, beside whom she sat. Had he but known it, some subtle magnetism had, the moment she entered the building, assured her of his presence. And then all the slumbering forces, fear, repulsion, fascination, began to work again. Towards the close of the performance, Lord Dolph Bassett went to pay his respects to the viceregal party, and was requested to introduce his friend. It was found that the governor's wife and Barrington had mutual connections in England, that his mother and she had been friends. To his chagrin, she engrossed him completely till the concert was over, and only then was he able to exchange a word with Honoria. He offered her his arm, and they stood together for a moment behind the rest of the party waiting for the carriage to draw up. Suddenly he felt her arm quiver, and she wrenched it violently from within his. "'I wish that you would not look at me so,' she said in a low, forced voice. "'I am certain that you are trying to mesmerize me, and I will not have it. I will not.' "'You credit me with a power which I am quite unconscious of possessing,' said Barrington. She laughed in an unsteady manner and looked at him with an uncomfortable, half-averted glance. "'I was only joking. I have not forgotten my dream at Kuralbin. "'Well,' with a coquettish accent, "'I hope that Mrs. Ferris nursed you carefully.' "'You were very cruel to leave me the day after my accident.' "'I like to be cruel sometimes,' replied Honoria." "'You must be kind to me now,' said Barrington, with a slight emphasis on the must. "'I have come to Leckhart's town on purpose to be near you.' The carriage drew up. Honoria got in. Both the ladies smiled and nodded adieu, and Barrington made his escape from the crowd round the theatre door. A dinner party at the Bunyas was a small affair, consisting only of the family circle, one of the ministers and his wife and daughter, and a heavy young squatter who stuck to Miss Longleat like a limpet. Maddox was conspicuous by his absence. Miss Little, the Attorney-General's daughter, a pretty porcelain-like figure with irregular features, a golden fringe, and the self-complacent ease of a colonial belle, was apportioned to the Englishman. She had a great deal to say about herself and others, talked in a giggling monotone, and was evidently very much ashamed of her mother, who sat opposite, a stout red-faced lady with shiny black hair, and a reproachful expression who, report stated, had once been a cook 
and who consoled herself under the burden of her present greatness by a deep and abiding sense of injury. Honoria sat at the foot of the table, supported by Mr. Little and her bucolic admirer. Thus, during the meal at least, Barrington found any but general conversation impracticable. The premier was gruff and abstracted, furtively watching his daughter across the table, and scowling unpleasantly whenever Barrington addressed him. It was not his practice to conceal his antipathies under a mask of politeness. And in this instance he had no hesitation in making it apparent to the Englishman that his presence was not highly welcome. But Mrs. Ferris's cackle was an effectual cover to any want of cordiality on the part of the host, and Barrington felt comforted by the old lady's reassuring whisper. "'Don't mind his looking cross. It is only because he hates your breed.' The talk during dinner was principally political, and bore reference to the elections, and to the conduct of Middleton and his venal and unpatriotic crew. The Attorney-General delighted in high-sounding phrases. Honoria joined in the discussion with an affected air of interest, while Miss Little stifled sundry yawns and remarked in a confidential gabble to her neighbor that she wished they'd look sharp about the railway and get it done, for she was close up sick of hearing about it. Though to be sure, she added naively, if it wasn't for the members, Leichardt's town would collapse altogether, for there's never anything going on except when Parliament is sitting. I do so love dancing and parties and dressing up, she continued enthusiastically after a brief pause, during which the Premier had sonorously aired his views upon the deadlock system. We are going to give a dance next Friday. I'm sure I hope you'll come to it. I'll introduce you to my ma by and by and tell her to ask you, all proper, but if she forgets, mind you come just the same. Ma doesn't do much at our parties, except look after the lights and the supper. I hope you're fond of fun. There will be lots soon, directly after the May ball, and it is always so much pleasanter when there are plenty of beaux. You have been staying at Kurlbin, haven't you? Do you know that they call Honoria the Enchantress of Kurlbin? It is because she always makes people fall in love with her, it must be nice to have everyone in love with one. Can you guess what I have been doing this afternoon? I've been christening a steam launch. I called it the Little Nell, after myself, you know, turned upside down. Nell is my name, and the idea just suits, for I always like to have somebody in tow. Do you think it is wicked for girls to flirt? Honoria is a terrible flirt. There was actually one man who shot himself because she had let him on pretending she liked him, and then refused him. Is it true that Australian girls have ever so much better complexions than English ones? And do you think them pretty, really? And so on during dinner ad nauseum. Later on, other guests dropped in. It was one of Miss Longleat's evenings, which had become so deservedly popular. The Bassets were there, and all the ministers, except Maddox, with their wives, politicians young and old, some uncouth, newly fledged in the wilds, and trembling at their first entrance into their chief's drawing-room. Others, and these were mostly townsmen, complacent, self-assertive, and voluble. There were ladies, fresh and youthful, young gentlemen, distinguished by their regulation evening costume, who were employed by day in the government offices, and a sprinkling of more hirsute and less carefully attired bushmen. Barrington observed that though there was in the assemblage a considerable diversity of dress and manners, there was a delightful unanimity in the homage that was tendered to the fair hostess. Honoria moved about, animated and chattering. She talked politics to the senators, 
and flirted with the young gentleman, she was universally charming. Only Maddox, who had studied her carefully, might, had he been there, have detected an artificial ring in her voice. The party was delightfully informal. There were cards for the elders, and there were music and conversation for those who were so inclined. But it seemed to Barrington that everyone talked, and no one listened. Some of the young ladies walked out in the garden among the roses and the budding azaleas, but in spite of his urgent request, Honoria refused to stir. "'I will not go,' she said curtly. "'Do not try to make me.' He bowed silently and left her. But afterwards her eyes seemed to meet his and say, "'See, this is the petty society over which I am queen. Do you not make my discontent deeper by contrasting it and me with the great world that you know?' Only just before he left her did she grant him an opportunity of speaking to her. "'I am told,' he said, "'that your father hates Englishmen.' "'Well,' she said, with the slightest movement of her shoulders, "'what then?' "'It is rather rough upon me, "'seeing that I am most anxious to cultivate his good opinion, "'that I should be handicapped so heavily. "'I can see that he has not taken to me.' "'She was sitting at the piano and went on playing for a few moments. "'Then she said quietly, "'I don't suppose you care much. "'What is his opinion to you?' "'Have you not been on the defensive long enough for one evening?' asked Barrington with an appealing look. "'I have a great deal that I long to say to you.' Her fingers wandered among dreamy cores, and their eyes met. Her own drooped, and became divinely soft. "'I won't be on the defensive, as you call it, any longer,' she murmured. "'You may judge of my inconsistency,' she added coquettishly. "'If you choose to take your chance of finding me at home some morning soon—' I am usually alone before luncheon, and then you may talk to me as confidentially as you please. End of chapter 23 Read by Celine Major.